0: Big Swinging Stocks acknowledges the traditional custodians of Australia's lands, skies, and waterways, and pays respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Hello and welcome back to Big Swigging Stocks, folks. This week we're in the early rise of earnings season. It's my favourite time of year, whether it's going to be a bloodbath or an absolute triumph. And we've got Director of Equity Research, Matt Hodge, with us on the show. Matt, so lovely to have you. Welcome. Pleasure. So, as we ask all our guests on the show, we love to probe uncomfortably into your past mm. and ask you what your first investing memory was.
1: That's a good one, actually. I used to read the paper pretty religiously mm. at school, in high school, and I would flick straight yeah, cool straight, straight to the business section and look at all the share prices and see what was happening yeah. in the world. I remember taking a graduate job at MIM, which got taken over by Extrata, and I was mm-hmm. telling the HR lady how the shares are really cheap. And I'm like, I've reflected on that. Why why was I doing that? The seeds were there early on.
0: Oh wow. Hmm. And did you get that grad roll?
1: I did, but the fruits from that tree were pretty sour and I've been kind of benefiting from that disappointment from then on. You know, you gotta get the knocks out of the way early, I think.
0: Yeah, that's true. So from H-I-H, you said?
1: M-I-M. M-I-M. Oh, M-I-M. H-I-H was an insurance Sorry.
0: company. H-I-H was an insurance company. Yeah. Tragically collapsed. Yeah,
1: no. M- M-I-M, Mount Isa of Mines, they were briefly the largest company in Australia, I think, in like 83. Wow. I'm yep. not that old. This is early 2000s I'm talking about. Oh, so,
0: you started working there as part of their decline era. Well,
1: foolishly, that was part of my kind of rationalization. I wanted its company to, to get better, but Extrata took them out a couple of years later, and that's mm. basically Glencore's Australian mines. Most of us, Glencore's Australian mines from MIM, I mean, they paid that back very, very quickly within yeah. two or three years. And That was right at the start of the China boom, like maybe 2003, of course. 2002. Yeah. Like they mm-hmm. made a mozza out of that. So they've done a few good deals. That was one.
0: Yeah. And now – Your director of equity research at Morningstar. Tell us a little bit about that role.
1: Well, I think probably for the last, you know, five years I'd had enough of covering mining stocks. They're not the most interesting. You know, Mm. a lot of people think they're really interesting, you know, because you got Mm. the spinning roulette wheel of commodity prices.
0: Yeah, and the spinning that wheel of which commodity is the hottest, you know, was lithium last couple of years. Whatever
1: it is, you know, and, and the less you know about commodities, the more certain you are of, of what the future price is going to be and how much of a numpty everyone else is. So, I mean, I much prefer businesses that have something really interesting and different about them, you know, earlier in the year, maybe last year. With our new technology analyst, he was initiating on WiseTech and learning about that business was really fascinating. So I've been really fortunate to sit on the Global Moat Committee for nearly 10 years now. So I get to see lots and lots of different businesses from all parts of the world. I think in Australia, we tend to get caught up in whatever's happening here and that's banks and mining, you know, that's half the half the index. Our index is weird. You go to the US or Europe or Asia and there are very different businesses, you know, I find that really interesting. I didn't answer your question. What do I do? Maybe the team will be wondering what I do too. I guess part of it is kind of like oversight of the research, making sure that what we're putting out is, is what we should be putting out, making sure that our assumptions are fundamental and sound. As part of Morningstar, we've got about 120 analysts globally, and we're quite collegiate. We all have the same financial model, for example. We all have the same approach. So, we're about, here's here's our strategy, and how do we best apply that? So, it's a little bit different from, say, if you're on the sell side working for an investment bank those analysts can do whatever they want right and analyst b has not really much to do with analyst c you know they can use whatever multiples they like or whatever valuation approach they like we don't we can't and we don't and that's deliberate so sometimes it's about connecting the team with who they should be connecting with to make sure that there's a good information exchange and that we're leveraging that we have a global team and sometimes that's really useful because Some markets are just at a much more advanced stage than others.
0: So, with all these years, almost two decades now of experience broadly in financial services or working for companies that are listed, a lot of Australians in particular have entered the market in the last, let's say, one to three years. The ASX study said that there was a huge increase over COVID in particular. What do you recommend young or just new investors, let's say, do when they're watching the news from this earnings season? What do you recommend to them?
1: Well, I would not be part of the news flow, really. If you are like deep in social media, flicking through that when you should be sleeping, that is not a good kind of temperament or mindset or, or information diet for Mm. you to be making good decisions, right? And it's good that people are interested in stocks. The Mm. market is super interesting, very different options to invest in rather than the vanilla options, which is just buy a house and pay it down. You know, like that can be interesting Mm -hmm. and that can be fun. But it's also really hard work, you know, like for the best part of 20 years, covering 15 to 20 stocks, that was my job, you know mm-hmm. so most people don't have that time to dedicate to understanding an industry and even learning how to analyze that takes a lot of work right so if i was young and getting into it yep yeah, part of part of the learning process is is making mistakes and and learning but i would put most of the money in an index fund sounds boring as as anything and if you want to take 10% of that and buy a couple of stocks here and there to learn, cool, you know, but I, I wouldn't recommend someone try to stock pick with a small amount of money, you know, mm. unless they are super duper passionate, you know, and I definitely wouldn't recommend trading because the the research shows the more frequently you definitely. trade, the worse your returns.
0: Yeah. So, in order to completely ignore your advice about sort of ignoring the noise, let's actually dig into this earnings season. Let's talk about the state of the market for those who are interested. I'm going to force you to talk about it, Matt, sure. because I thought there were some interesting themes coming out of it. One of which was, we've been in a bit of a volatile market, but earnings and projections in particular all seem really optimistic. Yeah. What's going on?
1: Well, I think if you look at the market now, it's Pretty close to fairly valued, which it certainly wasn't last year. At times last year, it got to kind of 15% below our fair value on a price to fair value basis. So just rolling up our fair value estimates into Mm -hmm. and then comparing that to the index. And, you know, what a June, September, October last year when we got to those lows. The only time we'd been lower than that was briefly in COVID and way back in the GFC. So that was telling you that the market looked reasonably cheap and there was a lot of noise out there people saying look oh you got to keep a lot of powder dry, you know you just okay fine Mm. generally when you hear that you know that kind of more panicked commentary that's generally a good signal that there might be a bit of value you know and sometimes the thesis is what needs to happen like Just nothing bad, nothing really bad. Actually, it can be not great and because the market expectations are for we're going to halfway fall off a cliff here. Like just getting to not great is upside, you know.
0: Yeah, that's a good point.
1: So That's a good point. But we've done that now, right? We've done it. The market is somehow more confident because we had one good inflation reading Mm. from the US. That really changed things. So, you know, from the Australian point of view, we haven't seen the full impact of interest rates flowing through.
0: Yeah, it's on a delay. Yeah, right.
1: Yeah, because of the two percent loans, you know, which which mm. juiced everything up again. So those are yeah. those are going to roll off pretty meaningfully in the next twelve months or so.
0: Yeah, but I, it's also just that as the RBA themselves have admitted, there's anticipatory inflation people putting up the cost of services in anticipation of that. And then I also thought it was really interesting that it's only been more recently that we've started to talk about the impact of how many people don't have home loans on the RBA's ability to tame inflation and also the fact that of those people who aren't on home loans, they're either living at home and so therefore net neutral. They're probably not paying market rate at home. But I also thought it was really interesting that there wasn't a lot of discussion of how many young people in particular are renting and therefore probably on fixed term leases. And so there's also going to be a lag on a landlord's ability to recover and just a lot of things happening that this earning season was like buoyant almost, but it feels like we've actually not, and this may be completely anecdotal. So I'm really curious to know if Morningstar is seeing this in sort of like the buying patterns as well, because we're definitely seeing it as self-wealth, in people holding off and starting to pull back on spending, both on investing as well, but consumer discretionary spending as well, while especially the older generations who are extremely cashed up, who don't have home loans, apparently are actually really spending hard. And that's been part of the problem in taming inflation.
1: Well, I'm, I'm not a consumer. So let's start with that. But I think consumer land has definitely been softer this half than previously. And I guess even if we look like late last year, we're kind of expecting a downturn, but it didn't happen. Christmas was still pretty mm. good. The first yeah. quarter was generally pretty good. Maybe towards the back end of the first quarter, things started tailing off and that's been continuing. You know, I hear that once the RBA took a pause, you know, that kind of downward trajectory might have started to reverse a little bit. So, it's really going to be interesting to see, right, you know, if there, if there are more interest rate rises that need to come and our inflation is still pretty high, what impact that will have. And I guess, like you say, the impact of the rate rises that have, that have rolled through haven't haven't really hit many of the Mm. households yet. So, there's people at the ends that kind of scramble to get into a house, Mm. you know, 2019, 2020, 2021, they will be in a world of pain. But there are others that aren't feeling that same level of pain, particularly Mm. wealthy retirees. They've probably got a boost to their income from higher rates. And you can actually buy a bond now which is good, you know, Yeah, for, that's
0: like a that's like a logical investment to make
1: now. Yeah. <laughs> or I don't know. I'm not a bond analyst, but maybe 10 years like buying fixed income was like holding a note and setting it on fire. You know, why would you why, why would you buy that? Oh, would well, you do it? well, you know, I guess some financial institutions were forced to hold, you know, 0% bonds. But mm. uh, as a a retail investor, you don't need to make silly decisions
0: like that. So, you talked a little bit about how previous earnings seasons and sort of the noise around them can often just fade into the distance and you don't remember what we were talking about in 2016. So, I'm curious for your thoughts on what then is the value of a company's forward outlook?
1: Well, I think they do put time into those statements. I mean, from an analyst's point of view, the past is the past; it's already done, right? So, you know, that's mm-hmm. just a, an addition exercise, right? What's the what are these value of these items on the balance sheet? What's the value of our kind of forecasts and the cash flows that come with that? We add that up, mm-hmm. right? But the outlook statements can give a clue as to like the trajectory of you know revenue margins, earnings, that kind of thing, and those things are p- pretty important. Some businesses are notoriously difficult to give outlook statements. For yeah, you know, steel making, for example, very short dated. Anything's got mm-hmm. volatile pricing on the end of it. But um, yeah, I mean, the market is always looking forward, and the market's looking for clues as to what's going to come in the future. And and those clues could be important drivers to how the market thinks about future earnings and valuations. You know, and yeah. there is still a tendency among analysts to kind of extrapolate. You know, so if things are doing well, we generally expect mm. things to continue to do well. If things are doing not so well, we generally expect things to continue to do not so well. So but for investors that therein lies the opportunity, right? You know, if the expectations mm. get too high relative to history, relative to what's likely, then maybe the stock is expensive. If the expectation is too low and all you need is kind of like a reversion to mean scenario provided the business mm -hmm. is any good you know they've got a product or service that people want and they're not under like fierce competition that's just going to eat their lunch you know you just wait you can wait you know
0: Mm. well let's talk a little bit about mining this is where you started out in financial services and we've talked to previous guests about sort of the downtrodden position of a lot of mining companies at the moment in Australia, just from a PR perspective. And we've had guests talk about the importance of mining to decarbonisation. And I'm curious for your thoughts on what's mining's role in climate?
1: Yeah, perhaps there's some elements of what keeps housing supply short in mining as well, right? Like some of the not in my backyard sort of stuff. I think. ESG as a kind of a, a discipline, it's still very early days. You know, like you talk about ESG ratings, okay, like maybe a mining company you give a a, a, a poor or not so good rating to, you know, because there's all these obvious impacts. It's like, okay, okay. JB Hi Fi, that's cool. That gets a tick from us. It's like, where'd all the stuff come from? You know, where'd all the stuff come from? There's no coherency, right? So I think there needs to be an honest understanding of where stuff comes from. And actually, you want the best companies with the minimal impact to be doing that, right? So let's take coal, for example. You know, no new coal mines. That's cool. All right. We'll have no new coal mines in Australia. The Asians will continue to burn coal because they've put a a lot of new coal plants in. They're not going to retire those in five years. The substitutes are not there yet, right? So it's going to take time. If we say no new coal mines, that's cool. Indonesia will just ship some more coal that's like 30% worse or 40% worse. And so we're trying to solve a global problem with you know, national solutions, and it just doesn't work that way. And it's interesting with the – I think it's called the safeguard mechanisms, if I'm correct, right? So this is impacting steel and cement makers and things like that. So basically, you know, it's to get to 2050 zero emissions, right? So these companies, they start with a base – Base year, I think it's 2019, something like that, and then they have to just basically reduce their emissions pretty much in a straight line from from that point on. And if they don't, then they've got to buy carbon credits to to make up the difference. But if you exclude, you know, cement makers from China from that, or steel makers from China from that, you could get a perverse outcome where we're where we're disincentivizing building new capacity here, and we're not. We're importing something that's got even more carbon attached to it, you know. So, there's a long way to go, yeah. But like mining is a is a, a critical industry and I guess that, that realisation was probably part of the reason why I, I started in that industry because it felt like an important thing to do.
0: Yeah, touchstone of pretty much everything we're doing today. Yeah. Like there's, yeah. you know, components and metals and I think what – I'd be curious to know is, personally, what's a thematic or a mining company actually that you wouldn't touch?
1: Well, okay, we can start with Russia. So, I don't think there's such a thing as Russian investment. I think it's uh, speculation, you know. Mm -hmm. And China, for example, I think they're trying to rebuild their reputation to say, hey, you can trust us. When you invest with us, you know, we're not going to change the rules or whatever. But I think you know, some trust was broken there and they need to kind of re-establish that with the investing mm-hmm. world. So, I'd be super circumspect about some of the more exotic countries, you know. Yeah, part,
0: so regulatory parts and local risk is clearly high for you.
1: Yeah. If someone was doing the equivalent of like cutting down the rainforest to plant palm oil, for example, <laughs> yep. I probably wouldn't feel good about that. I see no problem in owning a coal mining company, for example, which probably counter to what everyone else kind of seems to think at the moment.
0: Yeah, but also seems to be kind of based in complete lack of logic. Like if you want a Tesla, you're going to have to invest in metallurgical coal or accept that it's going to exist.
1: I would even own a thermal coal company, right? Like so there's this there's this kind of underlying underlying premise, right? That if if banks don't lend to coal companies, and if we don't buy shares in coal companies, coal companies are going to go broke. Coal companies are making so much money. They don't need external finance. They have finance themselves. No problem, right? And if you say no new coal mines, they'll just be even stronger because that's that sets the clock on the supply. Supply is heading down. If supply heads down faster than demand, the only thing that balances the market is price. So these guys could be like cigarette companies in the 90s and 2000s when they stopped advertising, one of their biggest expenses is building new mines. they don't build new mines and prices are high, they're just going to make a lot of cash flow and they're going to return that to shareholders. I don't have a problem in owning that, right? Because we're all we're talking about is ownership. If mainstream investors, for publicly listed companies don't want to touch these things, all will happen is that some private equity guys will get some money together and they'll make a lot of money, right? It's ownership. That's all we're talking about.
0: Do you not think that the push for ESG will mean that from a director's duties perspective, these mining companies will have to confront that. Like we are seeing there's, you know, shareholder activism at CBA, there's shareholder activism at super funds. These mining companies, I mean, okay, maybe their shareholders are of a demographic where they don't care, but they do have probably, they still have to think about what if their shareholders do care Like no more new plants, we've got these, we have a complete moat, we're going to swim in cash and then we're going to wind up? Like is that a feasible plan? Because what do you do when they all become end of life?
1: They either do something else, which is probably the wrong thing to do, or they they are just a finite investment. They return the capital. When that's done, they shut it up and it's finished.
0: That's a pretty revolutionary approach for Australia's mining industry. Oh, lots
1: of oil companies do that and plenty of mining companies have come and gone if you go back and look at, you know, what was mm. in the ASX 200 or 300 20 years ago.
0: Do you think they're going to do that? Like are the likes of Rio Tinto, BHP uh,
1: No, no, no. So so Rio Tinto, BHP, etc. That's a whole different ball game. As far as you and I are concerned, the Pilbara is a is an infinite asset. So in perpetuity asset. It is humongous. They'll be digging iron ore out of that for as, as, as long as we care to think about it. And and something like BHP and Rio Tinto, they're almost just like a big kind of rolling machine, you know. They've been around for, well, I don't know, 150 years or something yeah, like that. Yeah,
0: long more than a century. But, yeah. yeah,
1: so two of them basically started in Broken Hill, and there was a third, actually, four companies that started in Broken Hill. Amazing. Some of the mines that they have will deplete or they'll sell and they'll buy other things, they'll develop other things. It's just kind of like a rolling machine, you know, like a, a thermal coal company. I don't think it's going to work that way, right? I think, you know, you've got whatever life you've got, maybe you can extend that a little bit, but. A lot of these assets are basically in runoff. I think there's a there's an assumption or philosophical basis that you're attacking the 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 problem that I fundamentally disagree with. I, I detect. And I think it is what is the answer, right? And I think the answer is on the demand side. Right. So if you're talking if you if you're thinking about supply side solutions, That's where you're like, okay, no new mines. We're not going to extend it all. That's cool, right? So, supply is going to go down. Supply from Australia goes down. Australia's coal is better than a lot of other coals in the world. So, why does that make any sense, right? Just have Indonesia fill the hole. But fundamentally, it is consumption of this product that is at the heart of the emissions, you know. So, if there was no consumption, you wouldn't have to worry about the supply. Supply side will take care of itself. So legislation, I think the ESG topic has got off track and that governments have got, like there's this idea that private sector can do everything, you know, they're going to solve every problem and save it. There's a role for legislation. And maybe we're here in the discussion because there's a feeling that governments can't effectively regulate. And I guess the more people believe that, the more it maybe becomes true. But that's the right tool for curbing demand. So, whether that's price for consumers or or just straight out regulation, you can't do this anymore or you've got to reduce your emissions or whatever it is, those are the tools to solve the problem.
0: I think that's a really interesting cut of the problem that this can't be solved by supply side. You have to sort of temper demand. But I'm curious if cutting supply domestically is just going to be plugged by a whole internationally, but other players, arguably with poorer higher emission coal or other minerals or worse labor practices within you know mining those minerals why would the same not be true for domestic legislation on the demand side like China is our biggest exporter and consumer of steel and they've been propping up their economy by just building skyscrapers and cities is it the same thing going to happen?
1: I'm not exactly sure what you're asking. I mean, I think, you know, when it comes to to China, like we've been of the view that, you know, if you take their infrastructure stock per capita, it's basically at Western world levels, you know, their population peaked and is starting to decline. Their working aid population has been in decline for some time. And yet every year they're building more and more floor space, right? And then, we see that, hey, residential construction in China not being too crash hot. It's basically been in the intensive care ward for a couple of years now. But I think that's just the symptom of the underlying structural problem, right? And that's the problem that that presents China now is that, well, we don't want to go back to the well of just stimulating the old economy and building more stuff that we don't need and more houses that we don't need but we kind of annoyed the private sector. So we need to make up with them and hopefully get them to be confident enough to invest and we'll promise not to change the rules down the track and hopefully they can get the economy going. So it's it's a really interesting kind of point in time for China. But what's been fascinating to me through this whole period of uncertainty is that the market largely treats mining companies as safe havens and that's just weird you know, like these are fixed cost businesses. They compete in global markets. And if demand drops a little bit, price can drop a lot. It's not a supermarket, you know.
0: Do you think that the market sees them as safe havens consistently?
1: I think it's just learned behaviour, you know. Every time China's got a sniffle, they just throw more money at it, you know. Mm. And the returns the kind of return on investor capital that these businesses have been making, particularly the iron miners, unbelievable, you know. These are not businesses that typically make a 50% return on investor capital. I don't know does your audience understand the return on investor capital
0: Yeah. Concept? Well, I mean, I think you should explain. We uh, have a very diverse yeah. range of listeners, but I think you should yeah. explain well, it. Well,
1: th- in, in very simple terms, it's the amount of profit you make for the investments that you dollar. have, right? So, yeah. you know, if the return investor capital is 10% a year, basically for every dollar you have, you're earning 10 cents a year, which is which is fine. That's roughly the cost of capital for a mining company. Maybe it's 9% in that order, right? These guys have been making like, well, from the iron ore mines, at times they were making 100%. So for every dollar investment they're making, they were making a dollar. And then the market's mm. going, well, we'll put these things on a PE of nine or something. It was, but it's it's almost essentially saying that these earnings are replicable and will continue in the past. So it's, it's factoring in some downside, but not mm. that much. And not that much in the grand scheme of things. You know, the iron ore price was 20 bucks 20 years ago.
0: But don't you think a lot of that was factoring in decarbonization and the reliance that? decarbonisation would require on coal in particular. Like you want to build a bunch of electric cars and batteries and solar farms and everything else you're going to need to do.
1: Oh, you think that's why the iron price is where it is?
0: Well, no, I'm not saying it is the only reason, but I think that it's fact. You don't think it's factoring no, into forecast?
1: No, no. Steel mostly goes to building infrastructure and buildings and ships and things like that. You know, like whatever's floating around. And well, I think Tesla is mostly aluminium actually, but whatever is consumed in that kind of green part of the economy, it's pretty small. You know, and mm. China is well, well over half of the world's steel. You know, so if you look at how China consumes steel, that's a pretty good proxy for how the world is consuming steel. Like that's the big ball mm. game is what happens in China. Whatever whatever happens everywhere else is a sideshow compared to what they do there. And what they do there, like 80% of it hinges on fixed asset investment. So, it's building houses, building buildings, building infrastructure, that sort of thing.
0: Okay. What are your thoughts on the PE ratio of the ASX? Yeah.
1: So, I wouldn't pay a lot of attention to the P ratio for a single index because it doesn't tell you very much, right? I was like, well, the P ratio for the index is now different to what it was 10 years ago. So, I, well, that doesn't tell you anything, right? Because WiseTech didn't exist and wasn't listed 10 years ago, right? So, as the nature of the businesses on the index change and they're waiting in their index, so too will the PE change. You know, the fact that the miners are, what is it, close to a quarter in the – between the, the banks and the miners, roughly half, and they're on, what, low single-digit PEs? That's going to pull the whole thing down, right? So if you looked at the ASX and said, oh, well, you know, PE in the ASX is lower than the PE on the, you know, the NASDAQ or whatever, therefore, Australian market's cheap. It doesn't make any sense. Because the nature of the companies and the nature of the earnings underneath that are completely different, right? So if I wanna orientate myself in the market, what I do is use our price to fair value chart. And it has shown at the times where it's where it, it's shown as being cheap have turned out to be reasonably good times to invest, but I'm not saying that that will necessarily repeat, but it helps me find the grounding, you know, and when, you know, the whole market goes down 10 or 15% or whatever and you go, okay, things are looking cheap now, it doesn't mean that every single stock that we think is cheap is going to be cheap. Inevitably, we can't get them all right, but it probably tells you it's not a bad time to think about putting money to work. Having said that, most people should just ignore the market altogether and should just put a set amount in every month, right? And then when the market's cheap, what they get to buy for the amount they're putting in is more. And when the market's expensive, what they're putting in, what they get for that is is less. So, it has this weighting towards cheaper markets, slight benefit. If you just keep doing that, you're going to be fine, you know. It's a good discipline. Where people get into trouble is is like, oh, my God, there's a recession coming, you know. I've got (laughs) to get all my money out of the market. It's like, well, we've kind of been in one of those periods now, and from that time, the market's up 10 or 15%. What do you do now? Uh, oh, my yeah. God.
0: Buy a, it's like, a premium. Oh,
1: no, no, it's definitely going to go down. All right, So, you can re- you can be running around in that circle for, for years. Yeah. All the while, you've missed out. So, generally being invested in the market, is good, you know, and timing the market. Yeah, all
0: the research says time, Yeah, just time. time. Dead people's accounts are the best performing investment accounts because they just didn't touch it. Yeah,
1: time in the market, not timing the market. There is no one that I'm aware of in the world that is the Warren Buffett of timing the market.
0: You've got to have a crystal ball. Speaking of crystal balls, Mm. imagine it's 1st of January, 2024. Mm. You're waking up. Had a good New Year's Eve, hopefully. And you're reading the front page of the AFR. What do you think the big investing headline is going to be?
1: No idea. No idea. It's not that far away, you know. Maybe there's some discussion about maybe 2024 is the year where, yeah, finally all these loans roll off and they're talking about, you know, how much less money consumers are going to have and how much pressure on households there's going to be. I mean, I think we're just going to see more widening of the wealth gap with this.
0: Hmm. It does feel like there is a bit of a two-speed economy, two-speed class. We're kind of eroding that traditional middle class and there's just people who seem to be doing really well and people who are really struggling.
1: Yeah. And I had a child in 2017. So, you know, first couple of years prior to covid was spending a lot of time at home, and then during COVID, spending a lot of time at home, and then when I started to venture out and go back into the city, like, wow, that's a lot of change. And then, you know, where have all these luxury goods retailers come from? You know, like Louis Vuitton and, you know, well, there's, there's heaps, there's just heaps more than there ever was. And why are all these people lining up in front of them? Luxury goods companies have done very, very well, so... I don't know if and when that's going to end I, it doesn't feel like wealthy people are doing it doing it tough I think that there's going to be a lot of pain in the probably going to be a lot of pain in the middle particularly on young families with a with a mortgage so maybe some of those you know the low end might do quite well you know some of the low end retailers that I'm sure you can think of but the middle you know that's probably going to be a difficult place for you know businesses that are serving you know middle income households probably going to face some headwinds
0: yeah thank you so much for joining us on big swinging stocks matt it's been a pleasure chatting to you my pleasure And to our listeners, make sure you're liking and subscribing and drop us a note on Spotify or Apple with your thoughts or comments or make sure you jump and follow Self Wealth on Instagram and drop us a note about this pod and whether you liked it and your thoughts. And we'll see you next week on Big Swinging Stocks. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by SelfWealth and operates under AFSL number 421789 as general advice only. Because we can't take into account your personal objectives or financial situation, you should seek independent professional financial advice before making any investment decision. For more information and our financial disclosure statement, check the show notes.